My name is Jackson Damhorst. And my name is McKenna Damhorst. And the purpose of this Planet Action Now episode is to give us a basic understanding of what is going on with our planet in terms of global warming and climate change. We are very lucky to have with us today Dr. Dennis Baldocki, Professor of Biometeorology, Ecosystem Ecology, and Climate Change from UC Berkeley to help us understand the basics of climate change, global warming, and what it means to us. Dr. Baldocki, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Happy to, happy to be on your podcast. So I was hoping to start off with a problem that can be confusing for many of our listeners. What is the difference between climate change and global warming? Are these separate issues or are they related? Oh, that's an interesting way to, to phrase it. Um, on one hand, in today's world, they're both happening maybe simultaneously. Um, maybe global warming is a, is a type of climate change. I guess climate change could be maybe a lot more vague or it could be associated with cooling, more rain, less rain. Uh, whereas when we say global warming, it's a little bit more specific that climate is changing and is changing in the direction of a warmer climate. Wow. Yeah. One thing I think uh, I feel would surprise our audience would be that CO2 makes not a 4%, not 0.4%, but 0.04% of our atmosphere. How does such a small amount of that compound have such a giant impact? I know you work with biometeorology and, and a lot yeah, of Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it's one the general population always asked and are a little confused about. Uh, I'm teaching a course on the biosphere and we're covering this material right now for the class. Um, so CO2 is a gas that absorbs um, radiation of a certain wavelength. Um, let, let's, let's give a little bit of background. Everything has a temperature and things at that temperature will radiate energy of certain wavelengths. For example, the universe essentially uh, from the Big Bang has a three degree temperature. If you go anywhere in the universe, it's about three degrees um, Kelvin. And that uh, radiates what's called microwave radiation. Now the sun is about 6,000 degrees Kelvin, very, very warm. Yeah. It radiates energy of the wavelengths we see. Um, this is solar radiation that has wavelengths on the order of what we call microns, 0.4 to 0.7 microns. Now that energy interacts with the surface, warms our planet to the temperatures that we live on above freezing. And so we are now radiating energy more on the order of what's called three to maybe a hundred microns. Well, the thing is gases like carbon dioxide absorb radiation that has wavelengths on the order of four microns, I forget, seven microns, something like that. And by absorbing that energy, it re-radiates it back to the surface and essentially warms the surface. So if we lived in an atmosphere that had no carbon dioxide, no methane, no atrous oxide, just maybe oxygen and nitrogen gas, we'd essentially be a frozen planet. Our temperature would be, oh, 250 degrees Kelvin or 273 Kelvin's freezing. So it'd essentially be a nice ice ball. Really? So that's amazing. Having wow. these gases that absorb this long wave radiation is part of the whole issue of, of global warming because they're able to keep the planet warm enough. And as we add more and more CO2, it radiates more energy to the surface that warms the surface even more. That's kind of in a nutshell. 
Wow, that's crazy. It's it's obvious we're now in a situation where we're starting to disrupt that uh, atmospheric balance. But uh, why are such small changes in heat over the globe having such a drastic impact? Well, because it's everywhere. Uh, I, I think I heard years ago, I think some of the radiative forcings of elevated levels of CO2 might be somewhat like a, a, the old incandescent Christmas tree lights. And you're putting one on every square meter of the whole planet. So wow. CO2 is a well-mixed gas, and so it's over the whole planet. It's over the land, it's over the ocean, it's over the poles. Yeah. And so wow. we're getting that extra watt or two of energy back to the, the surface, essentially. And so it, it starts warming the whole the whole planet from what it was before. Okay. That's crazy. Think, think of it in a way, I like another analogy, is um, CO2 maybe kind of acts like your blanket uh, in your bed. So let's oh. say you're in a cold room, you're not heating the room, and you put a blanket on, you're essentially losing heat from your body, you're warming that blanket, and that blanket's re-radiating back to your body to keep you warm enough, whereas the outside of the blanket is at room temperature, which if you're like my friends in England who like to have ice on their coverlet in the morning with their windows open, might be freezing, <laughs> for example, Jeez. and yet they sleep very, very comfortable because they have this nice pile of blankets. Wow. So, so these... in a way, CO2 is acting like that. Wow. wow. If these greenhouse gases are trapping heat, though, uh, why aren't they reflecting the heat from the sun in the first place? Well, I mean, they're transparent to the sunlight because the sunlight is in that visible wavelength. It's much shorter wavelength. So it's not interacting with the uh, the molecules like the long wave radiation. So so these, these gas molecules are very selective to the wavelength of energy that they'll interact with. Wow. So I know a lot of this, I mean, 0.04% of CO2 in the atmosphere, that's, that's a very small amount to measure. How are you um, really looking at these past levels of CO2 kind of throughout history? Yeah, uh, that's a fascinating question. So we, could use, we can also say this is 400 parts per million. That, that's the type of a, a value we use. So my colleagues can go out to the ice cores in Antarctica and take uh, ice cores. And from these ice cores, they can extract bubbles and they can pull the air out. And by knowing how deep the bubbles are, they can age it. And essentially, they've been able to reconstruct the record of carbon dioxide back 800,000 years. This is wow, the time frame amazing. of which our species has evolved. So what do they find? Well, we have these periods of every 100,000 years of an ice age and an interglacial period, an ice age and an interglacial period. During the ice ages, carbon dioxide concentrations drop to about 180 parts per million. You have less CO2 in the air, the climate gets colder and colder and colder. Oh, wow. During the interglacial periods, CO2 kind of peaked at about 280 parts per million. So you have an extra 100 parts per million of CO2 that are able to absorb, re-radiate, energy to the surface and help warm it and so you can really see these interactive feedbacks between high and low co2 and glacial interglacial periods now part of this glaciation is also kicked off by how the tilt of the earth changes over geological time and how the earth revolves around the sun but the co2 really plays a extra amplifying impact and so now today we're at 400 parts per million. So we are essentially, because of human activities, um, over 100 parts per million higher than 
anything our Earth has seen in the last 800,000 years. Wow. Uh, in my own lifetime, I've seen CO2 concentrations increase by 100 parts per million. Uh, I was born in 1955, and CO2 was about 315 parts per million. Today, maybe an average of 410. There's, there's incidences where it's reaching 415. That's, so um, that's it's scary. changed a lot just in my lifetime. Wow. Yeah. That's that's crazy. Is um I heard uh, somewhere that we were actually going to be going into um, a small cooling period before um, human intervention with CO two. Is that true or? Um, there was controversies in the 1960s. Some people thought there might be some cooling. There were some scientists worrying about the role of sunspots on the climate. A lot of those things have been debunked. Um, wow. In recent years, they've done a lot of work and found that sunspots essentially have no effect on the climate. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, we, this is the thing about science. It's self-correcting. You have yeah. hypotheses. You start making measurements. You start having mathematical models. You learn more. Old ideas are thrown in the garbage can and forgotten, and we move on to new directions. That's, so. that's great. Is that yeah. uh, really what like got you interested in biometeorology? I'm well, I grew up on a farm, a walnut ranch in a little area called Oakley in East Contra Costa, and I did a lot of irrigating, driving tractor through the orchard, and I just liked the interaction between weather, climate, and agriculture. Oh, and yeah. I was in 4-H, and 4-H directed me through leadership programs to UC Davis. And mm -hmm. at the time, you know, I'd watch TV. We heard about meteorology. I had no idea about atmospheric science, but um, I didn't want to go UCLA or San Jose State, which, which had formal meteorology programs because those were big cities. And I just happened to find out that Davis had an atmospheric science program and they were kind of the same thing. And so I applied and got in and kind of led the way. I had a really good professor, Jerry Hatfield, who was an agricultural meteorologist, biometeorologist. And he taught some really interesting classes I enjoyed. And he pointed me in the direction for graduate school and just kind of one thing fell in line to the next. So. Wow, that's, that's so awesome. cool. I mean, obviously, you've you've been kind of top of this field for decades now. Has there certain pieces of your research that have really surprised you over the years? <laughs> I guess everything. Really? <laughs> well, I mean, just working with different people inspire you. Uh, there's new developments of instruments that allow you to do things you couldn't do before. Uh, a mix of things. But yeah, it's always some new things you're learning and finding new ideas and getting inspired by other people at meetings. So wow. and working with great students and postdocs, um, That's awesome. all, all makes it nice. That's awesome. Is there any it, certain parts of that, um, that surprise you about climate change though? Like, well, it's interesting you say that because I mean, I was a grad student in 77 and wow. we were reading one of the first papers on this, uh, by Manabi and Weatherall. It was, uh, published in 1975 as one of the first papers to understand how carbon dioxide may affect the climate system. And my professors at Nebraska were already starting to do work on carbon dioxide. So we were doing some of the very early work kind of connected with this. So it definitely piqued my, my interest. Um, and in some respects, I mean, many of the things I was reading in the 70s and 80s have kind of set the stage for what we're dealing with now. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the physics is pretty well known already for a long time. Wow. So it's kind of frustrating that we kind of have to let society have almost a catastrophe before we act on it. Um, yeah. I always tell people on these type of forums, I get frustrated on 
one hand, society respects science and scientists and they fund us to do research. We study a system, we understand it, we come up with observations and recommendations, and then it becomes politicized and people have their different axes to grind, I guess. And then we do absolutely nothing until we have to do something really drastic really soon, as you're seeing right now. And it's uh, costs us a lot more. It's going to be a much harder and we're going to have to do it much faster. And yeah. you know, we didn't have to do that. It, so that's what frustrates me more than anything else. Yeah, it's crazy. We've known about it for 40 years. And yep. um, I mean, even now, I'm I'm thinking like the P- PG&E with um, both you and I are going to be affected by these power outages. Um, <laughs> yes. ours, ours is starting yeah. at uh, like uh, Tuesday night tonight. So um, do you feel that a lot of these, the natural disasters that we've seen, hurricanes, droughts, and here especially in California, these campfires, these wildfires, do you think these have been um, exacerbated by climate change? Or? Oh, very, very much so. I mean, we saw a seminar uh, last week or so at Berkeley on some of this. And yeah, these fires are late, late, later in the season and by driven by winds that we just haven't seen before. And these, these are really outside the the norm essentially yeah a guy named leroy westerling from uc merced he may be a good guy to um interact that with in the future a uh, very very good scientist very uh eloquent uh, really an expert on fires and fire climate awesome. so um yeah he really, really was an important seminar he gave that's crazy that's how so are cool. these um winds being affected i know a lot of times there's been studies on polar vortexes and that being increased by global warming and climate change can you expand upon that i've I'm surprised. Yeah, about oh, that. I mean, you, my relatives all lived in Santa Rosa, and they they got exposed to those fires, I guess, a couple of years ago. And wow, uh, you just have this um, high pressure systems that create these winds inland that come off the land towards the ocean, and as the air moves from higher elevations to lower, it compresses and gets warmer, and it sets the stage because we're late, late in our our um, season where we've had no rain since April, May. And so the vegetation is very, very, very dry. The winds yeah. are really, really strong. And if you have something that sparks fire, it just takes off. Yeah. And then you start having overgrown forest on top of it. Uh, the embers start uh, firing ahead of you. And one thing just starts hopscotching after another. And um, it's, yeah, it's just unprecedented. So. That's crazy. Yeah. I know there's there are a lot of times there can be certain feedback loops. Have you seen that in in your research too? I mean, with biometeorology. And... Oh, I have to think about that one. I mean, there's there's various feedback loops we are interested in. Often maybe with drought and vegetation and water availability. Uh, you know, we just talked about the one on fire. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's other ones in physiology about um, carbon dioxide. And, how they interact with plants and plant growth and how plants have these little pores called stomata and at elevated CO2 levels, they help the stomata close a little bit. And that's supposed to be a water savings effect. Um, the degree that occurs is something we're still doing research on. So, but yeah, the environment's full of feedbacks, both positive and negative. So yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, the, the one I think we're really concerned about is this ice albedo feedback. So as we start, warming we start melting our ice caps uh, greenland or arctica the arctic ocean and if we start doing that instead of a highly reflective surface that helps keep the planet 
modulated and cool, this planet now becomes much warmer because it's darker and absorbs more radiation. And that's a feedback we don't want to mess with. Uh, the other yeah. feedback we worry about is another one up in the Arctic is all the tundra. This was all permafrost. Uh, a lot of it's full of this organic matter, this peat that formed for you know thousands of years. But right now it's locked away from the climate system. As these units start to warm and thaw, the microbes now become active and they'll start decomposing that carbon in, in the soils. And then they can put that into the atmosphere and raise CO2 levels even more. So there's a bunch of feedbacks we don't want to turn on and we are almost close to doing that. So Wow. Wow. What are some of the Ted biggest... Schur is another guy to talk to. Ted Schur is the expert on um, carbon of the um, Arctic. Uh, he's at uh, Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, a really good scientist. Wow, you've given us so many good leads too. Yeah, man. thank wow. you so That's much. That's my job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've been really helpful. So I, I was I was an editor of a journal, and I got to publish papers of these people, so I got to read their work firsthand for many years. So really, what was oh. the journal? Uh, journal of Geophysical Research Biogeosciences. Wow, that's awesome. Your research in biometeorology deals with how our how our biosphere breathes with the help of a system of 140 sensors around the globe called FluxNet. What is FluxNet? Can you give us a little well, more information on what your research has been telling us about the biosphere? Oh, wow, you guys, you guys have been doing your homework. <laughs> Very good question. Yeah, I mean, you've been working in this this field for decades, and it's, it's I think, personally really helped a lot of our generation. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you a good perspective. Um, one of the reasons I'm a biometeorologist is because I feel it's important to measure what's called fluxes. So let's, let's go back to um, Dave Keeling, who's very famous for starting this whole thing and starting to measure the CO2 record in Mauna Loa. So people like him and other chemists and uh, people, they'll measure the concentration of gases in the atmosphere, which is very good. We want to know if these gases are changing and how they're changing over time. But if you want to look at it from a scientific perspective, think of your bathtub and or your sink and the amount of water in that bathtub and sink. Well, it will change depending on the fluxes of water into it from the tap and okay. the water out of it from the drain. Oh. And if the fluxes in and out are different, those concentrations will cause the water level to increase or decrease. So with that analogy, it was important for me as a scientist to not only measure concentrations, but to measure the fluxes. Wow. And so this is where we've been, as biometeorologists and micrometeorologists, been using this method called the eddy covariance technique for the last 30 years or so. Now, that's fine and dandy. We make measurements on an ecosystem. Of, I did some stuff in a forest in Tennessee and in Canada and croplands. Wow. And I, from but, the research, it looked like you'd gone up to like, or there were at least flux net sensors in like Antarctica and Brazil. And I mean, oh, they're all over the place. Yeah. That's, so the idea is to create a global network of these stations that are able to make long term measurements. So I just got back from Japan last week and the Asian community was celebrating their 20th anniversary. So they've been running these stations all across Asia for 20 years. Wow. And it's oh, wow. fascinating. They have uh, some sites in these wonderful peat swamp forests in Indonesia and Malaysia. 
Um, they have towers in the grasslands of uh, Mongolia, uh, rice paddies in China and, and um, Japan. And so we're trying to really, what we say, measure the breathing of the biosphere. So we're trying to understand how whole ecosystems will um, assimilate carbon dioxide through photosynthesis during the daytime, how they lose carbon dioxide through respiration at nighttime in the winter, and how these things respond to temperature and light and soil moisture and rainfall and a whole bunch of things. So this is why we're doing this. And now these data then can be used to what we call calibrate observations from satellites from space. So you mentioned there's like 400 sites. So it's a really small sample of sites across the world compared to the real surface of the globe. Wow. And yet NASA has these satellites looking at everywhere on the surface all the time. And so they can measure reflected light of different colors, and they can use that information to estimate carbon uptake by the biosphere and the amount of leaves on the biosphere and the length of the growing season. And our network helps them validate their, their, their studies, essentially. Wow, that's, that's crazy. Being one of the main researchers on all of this, uh, what do you think is one of the best ways to really get information out to the public? How are you making sure that this FluxNet is really being shown to large masses of people? Well, that's a great question. I was just on a telecom um, today with our, our group in the Ameriflex, and we're trying to write our new proposal, and we're trying to think of ways to interface with the public. And I mentioned my phone conversation with you. I think this wow. conversation is one of these ways to do it. Um, the other thing we do is our data is available publicly, so we share data. Um, my one only frustration is not all scientists in this field are sharing their data, oh. and we really need to. It, it's Most yeah. of the data is funded by public funding from governments, and I think we owe it to society to have these data out there. Yeah. And so people like you could use data like this to think about maybe natural carbon solutions. You know, how may planting forests do a better job of taking carbon out of the atmosphere or looking at wetlands? So, um, I, yeah, I think it's just more important to communicate and yeah. keep working at it. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole purpose of Planet Action now. We're hoping to take a lot of these right-on-the-front-line researchers like you and share it with the public. I mean, this was originally started for Santa Cruz County, Monterey County, but we're hoping to really oh. expand it and get the, the general public in California and beyond into this. So Well, great. Great. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Just curious. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. We thank you. Well, we can't do it all ourselves. And again, it takes a community. And so I think working yeah. together and sharing and helping each other out is, is the way to go. Yeah. Why are a lot of these uh, scientists keeping their data? Is it just on like private journals or? Uh, I think it's just different personalities. Um, some people just are a little self-conscious. They think someone may steal their data or um, <laughs> tell their story before they do. Um, some are faster and slower. Uh, but the reality is no one's really done that. And most of the scientists who have shared the data have actually had more successful careers. They've found some people have done some analysis that it's actually better to share than not share. Yeah. Uh, you get more involved with meetings. You get to know more people. And you learn more about your own data. I mean, this is what I like about sharing data is I can look at, I work with oak forests and I'm curious how, how my oak forest compares with another oak forest in a different part of the world. I can look at these data and, and learn a lot more. So it's, wow. uh, yeah, it's better to do that. 
Yeah. What do you mean by working with Oak Forest? Do you plan them or do you? Oh, oh, oh Oak Forest. Um, no, we, we have, um, we make measurements over native Oak Forest. Oh, wow. So. Interesting. Why Oak Trees over another type of forest? Um, well, okay. <laughs> I, I joke, but I, I was born in the town of Oakley and oh. <laughs> I moved to the town of Oak Ridge. And then I moved to Oakland, <laughs> and everywhere on this route, I happened to have field sites that ended up having oaks. <laughs> oh, that's <Wow>. awesome. <laughs> so again, sometimes things are just luck and serendipity. Yeah. Uh, I went to Oak Ridge as a postdoc, and the local forests were oak there. And Whoa. it was my mentor had one of the first meteorological towers. Uh, this is in the 1980s. And so we were able to make some of the first eddy covariance flux measurements of carbon dioxide and i found these systems quite beautiful and quite interesting um yeah. so yeah, just again luck were you were you one of the first people to really work with like eddy covariance then or um yes and no i mean i my teacher my my professor shashi verma was really one of the first and then my mentor my um director at oak ridge bruce hicks was also one of the pioneers so uh, i guess i'm the uh, the son of the godfathers of, of the field <laughs> essentially Wow. So I guess my role has been maybe more popularize it and use it in a larger, larger and longer scale with more people. So that's awesome. That's great. I mean, that's that's what we're hoping to do. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you were talking a little bit about like reducing carbon. Do you know if there's what are some of the main ways to kind of sequester that carbon? I know there's there's certain um, machines people have been working on to do that. There's also places like Nori, which I know are trying to create like carbon credits. Um, mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're being funded by the state of California to restore wetlands in the Sacramento Delta. Wow. And that seems to be a good way because uh, these systems, when they, they essentially form peat. So you have wetland plants, and when these plants die, their leaves get buried into the water and the sediments. And once that happens, they don't decompose very rapidly. And so they can build up soils over thousands of years. So that's, that's a very effective way. Um, the only problem is, is the area is not very large, and um, it's a little hard to do. My colleagues at Santa Cruz are very interested in working at Elkhorn Slough and doing some restoration projects there. Wow. So you may want to talk to some people at uh, Santa Cruz also. That's super cool. Do you know any uh, certain colleagues there? Or? Yeah, we're, we're interacting with a woman named Adina Payton, Payton, P-A-Y-T-A-N. So she's very interested in these blue carbon projects. That's awesome. And then also at USGS, uh, Lisa Wyndham Myers is doing some nice work. She's also leading some USGS projects on wetland, wetland restoration, and using wetlands as uh, carbon sinks. Wow. And, and USGS. And, 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 and she's, she's in Menlo Park. So these are all people close to you. So yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So you talked about how researchers are combating climate change. How can someone make a difference in their everyday life? Ah, these are good questions. We're trying to decarbonize as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, back when we lived in Tennessee, we built a house and we tried to make it very energy efficient. Um, we used passive solar. We use what's called a geothermal heat pump. Uh, we had extra insulation to our, our walls. Ooh. So our electrical bill, I think, was a third of what my wife's sister's was with a conventional house. So th- those are little things. And these are actually applying biometeorological principles. Now, I mean, we're thinking about putting solar panels on our roof. Uh, right now, we've actually subscribed to PG&E's plan to use um, renewable energy. So 
Yeah. I think most of our energy is supposedly renewable, uh, wind and energy. Uh, we just buy an electric car. So we're trying wow. to wean ourselves from fossil fuels. You know, we have the luxury to do that, but not everyone can. Yeah. Uh, I know all my young people in the lab, they all live in the city, so they take public transportation. They have bicycles. I think very few, if any, have automobiles. So their lifestyle choices are doing that. That's um, awesome. Years ago, we've converted to you know, light-emitting diodes for our lamps and got rid of uh, fluorescent lamps that you know, use a lot of energy, um, little things like that. That's great. So many of these are, are things that the general public can do themselves, too. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as you guys grow up, you have to make some hard choices yourselves about family. You know, do you want one kid or two kids or four kids? I mean, those are all mouths to feed that, um, you know, at least in the old current mode, you know, produce a lot of carbon and fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, that's a personal choice. And I don't want to say one thing or another but it's definitely something for you to think about and yeah but i mean with with climate change and and all of this global warming certain um everyone has different choices that they need to make to really help yeah. this cause and ch uh, changing to um like led light bulbs or contacting your congressman to that's that's mm -hmm. been the main thing that we're hoping to set up on our website is um, different links oh, good. to really go to and you can see like to help you see who your local congressman is, who your state congressman is, um, all the way up to the national level. Because well, and, and the funny thing is, you know, going to a non-fossil fuel energy economy is actually I, I can't see why people fight it in many ways. Um, yeah. First of all, it's sustainable. I mean, the sun just keeps burning and burning and burning. Um, it's essentially free. Uh, it doesn't put pollutants into the atmosphere. And so that doesn't have the consequences of uh, air pollution on your lungs and the ozone you produce. Um, uh, it still has good jobs. You know, people are working, putting up solar panels and wind, wind um, farms and stuff. Um, so I, I see it as a win-win situation. It's, yeah. it's more or less, I think there's a paradigm shift from an old economy, like the old buggy whips where, <laughs> you know, people have invested a lot in fossil fuel technology versus more modern and society's always changed. I mean, every generation, there's a paradigm shift of one technology to another. And we're kind of on the verge of that. It's just yeah. a matter of how fast it happens and how much pushback there is. Yeah. A lot of there, these, sadly, there will be some losers, but there will also be a lot of winners, and there always has been with with any change in history too. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these problems that we're having too could often be solved with the solutions you're trying to uh, you're bringing up, like such as for the power outages that we're having right now. A mm -hmm. lot of people with solar could possibly not be affected if they've got a closed circuit with their electricity. And there's there's some ethical issues too. I mean, if you're a doctor, you take the Hippocratic oath, and one of your first I think oaths are to do no harm. Yeah. As an environmental scientist, we have this precautionary principle, which is very simple or very similar. I'm sorry. And so as a society, I think we owe ourselves to do what's right and not harm the environment on which we, we, we depend. Um, right now, we kind of at, my, my colleagues at Stanford talk about the economics of the environment and they call about internalizing externalities, the fancy word for it. But the way I like to explain it is we treat the environment as a free sewer yeah. and that's not yeah. right. And so we've priced all of our products as cheap as can be and we just dispose of them. But there is a real cost that we are paying one way or another, ultimately through 
health problems, through water quality problems, et cetera. And yeah. so if we maybe priced our products more fairly that we also factor in the disposal of them, we may waste them less or we may adopt better um, transportation technologies and try to decarbonize our economy much faster. So yeah. Yeah. That's what this makes... is why part of the solution is, is economists and policymakers, not just scientists. And to tie into that, putting solar panels on your roof might actually be a better financial decision because then after a while they'll pay, they'll pay for themselves in energy. Absolutely. This is the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I think seven, eight years for some of these programs. And, and that was the way with our geothermal system in Tennessee. Um, you know, it costs us a little bit of money at the beginning, but it had a seven year payback. And, you know, essentially you're saving a lot after that. Yeah. yeah. That's why I find something too, like a carbon tax so interesting because mm -hmm. um, taxes in their truest sense are, are meant to give back and help the community. Yes. And a lot of time, like either through like building roads or bridges and a lot of times affecting the environment goes unnoticed. So if you could really mm -hmm. help certain companies or just people in general who are using a lot of carbon help give back to their own environment, that could really make the world a better place. And... Oh, very good. Hey, you're very wise. That's very good. Thank you. Dennis Baldocki, thanks so much for coming on. This has really been a joy talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, same here. Well, thank you and your sister both. You guys ask great questions, and you're very mature and very smart and very wise. And I think we have a lot of hope with young people like you um, into the future and make the world a better place. So. Thank you. Right. Thank you so much. <laughs>